You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us. We are going into week two of our series called Miracles the Jesus Way, looking at the people surrounding the miraculous events of Jesus, seeing how they responded, and then asking ourselves, what might we have done if he were to move that way in our lives? This was recorded yesterday at the bridge here in Kansas City. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. I will get there in just a moment. If you are a part of a family, a work group, a group chat, or heaven forbid, an email thread, you know that nothing happens in a vacuum. You ever got caught in an email thread you can't get out of? Like, group chats are bad, but, but you can leave those. Email threads are impossible to leave. Last year, during, when the kids were in school, some, one of the parents decided to email all of the students in one, it was like 50 parents on this email thread, which was fine because it was pertinent information. But then I start getting all these replies. Thanks for the information. Love that. Oh, that was interesting. Then they're answering them back. I was happy to, sir, like I'm getting 150 emails a day from this one thread of just people saying thank you and back and forth. Things don't happen in a vacuum, okay? There's always reactions to things. In the physical world, to every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And to a certain extent, that is similar in the personal world. The actions of family and of friends, of public figures, of God and of Satan elicit reactions and responses from humanity. Not always opposite and and of equal impact, but there's always a response. And it wasn't always this way. You go back to Genesis 1-1, this may be the most read verse since we've got into our, our Sunday morning services, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and it talks about him moving over the surface of the chaos, but there's nothing going on there, and that was the last time that ever happened. Never again did things take place in a void. From that point, the rules of physics and of chemistry and even human emotions and spiritual dynamics all were at play. Since the beginning of the creation of the world, we have reacted and responded to things. Since that moment, all things that have been done have been done in relation to humanity in some respect. Even when it's a cosmic event that we think is completely out of our realm, it involves humanity. If you look at the story of Job, when Satan goes to talk with God in the throne room, that is about as far off earth as you can get, and they talk about humanity. That's, we're still who they talk about. Through the best and the worst things that have happened in cosmic history, the things that we know and the things that we don't, the things that we can quantify and the things we have no clue about, Man has still been a witness or a victim or a recipient of the blessing of those things. Israeli philosopher Carlos Stringer wrote a book recently about what he calls the global fear of insignificance. 
that especially in these days of social media where everyone seems to be having more people look at them than you, that we're struggling with this idea of, do our lives even matter? And I think everybody has struggled with that at some point. It is ironic that humanity is plagued with thoughts of insignificance, but all that God has done since the beginning of creation and all the enemy is doing has been done in some relation to humanity. We are what the greatest forces in the cosmos are thinking about and are talking about. Now I say that all this because as we dive into this series that we're working on here on miracles the Jesus way, we have to remember that miracles don't take place in a vacuum. Okay, when God does something miraculous, it doesn't happen like in the chaos of the pre-Adamic season where there was nothing going on. The power acts of Jesus don't just touch one person. We're looking at the miracles of Jesus with an eye towards those who saw them, those who grappled with them, those who witnessed them, and even those who received the blessing or were offended by it. Last week, We talked a little bit about those who were around when Jesus cast demons out of individuals into pigs, and we realized that the people who were there for that were offended and asked Jesus to move on. Nothing happens in a vacuum. So today we go to Luke 5. Last week was a miracle of deliverance. This week is a miracle of healing that includes some really unusual circumstances. But before this specific healing, let's note for a second what Jesus is doing before he demonstrates his power. Luke 5, verses 15 and 16. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. You can always ima- almost imagine some of the disciples going, Jesus, do you have any grasp of momentum here? Like, people are coming to you. You used to have to go village to village, but now they're coming to you, and about the moment that they get to you, you withdraw, and you go off to a desolate place and pray alone. Bob Sorge said the other day that Jesus was constantly restraining himself. The only place he did not restrain himself was in prayer. Think about it. Anything Jesus did, he had to be careful you call Lazarus out of the grave, you're not careful, everybody comes out. Like he, he, had, he was constantly restrained in power. The one thing he gave himself fully to to demonstrate all that was within him was when he gave himself to prayer. He is further here in his public ministry to the point where crowds are gathering and they're gathering, let's just be honest, they're gathering to see miracles. They're coming for the teaching, but they really want to see people healed. And they're gathering at some people, some crowds in this season The Bible says we're up to like 5,000 people only counting the men. So easily 15,000 people gather. Some people read these stories and you go, that can't be real. My kids can't hear me from the basement to the second floor of the house. How on earth is Jesus preaching to 15,000 people and anybody hearing? The Journal of Acoustical Society of America is published by the American University in Washington, D.C., Now, maybe you've already got your copy and you've read this. But if you haven't, recently they did an examination of Benjamin Franklin's claim that his friend, George Whitfield, would often preach to 30,000 people in an open-air meeting. 
And they said, could we possibly do this? And they did some testing and, and, and measuring crowd size. And with a strong voice, they believed it was possible to preach to 30,000 people if they were tightly, densely packed in. If George Whitfield can speak to 30,000, Jesus can speak to 15. Especially if he rose out away a little bit from the, from the shore in a boat. It's possible. And in this season of preaching and ministering to these large crowds, some of the largest maybe that had ever been gathered, the Bible says he took what many of us think we cannot afford. He took time. He did the thing that we think we cannot do. He walked away from a crowd that had gathered to hear what he had to say. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Think about this. Jesus, the Son of God, was not too busy to set time aside to go talk and recharge at a deep level with his Father. Jesus lived this life of ebb and flow, of pouring out and of receiving, of giving and then going back to his Father and getting. Now, we understand the pouring out thing. Most of us do it every day. But few of us understand the value of setting aside time to receive and recharge. How on earth did we get busier than Jesus? How did that happen? Some of you are old enough to remember when TV would shut off. Remember that? Like, I don't know, it was 10.30 or midnight, or it's, at some point, all of the local channels would play the national anthem and a picture of the flag for 60 seconds, and then <laughs> TV was gone. And you went to bed. It was like, okay, now I know what to do. I mean, and it wasn't just your TV. It was TV everywhere. It just died. And we had a bit of a rhythm. But increasingly over the years in a 24-hour news cycle and busyness, we have taken on busyness as a virtue. And we kind of believe that you know, the world doesn't stop and we can't either. Friends, Jesus stopped. With thousands of people waiting, you go, hold on. And he would withdraw to a desolate place and he would pray. And what would follow were miracles. And even though we can see the correlation of this ebb and flow of him going to recharge with the Father and come back and do miracles, even though we see the correlation, we can't break the cycle in order to do even a measure of the things that he did. That we might represent what he lived for. Jesus lived a life that we want to emulate, but we don't want to implement we like the idea, but we don't like the practice. The next passage finds him having been specifically with the Father, and he comes back to the people ready to pour himself out. Luke 15, on one of these days, as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Luke goes out of his way, the other Gospels don't mention this, but Luke goes out of his way to mention the Pharisees that had gathered while Jesus was teaching. Who's he talking to us about here? In Bible times, there were four basic groups among the religious people. Religious groups have always divided up between those who do one thing and don't do another, the haves, the have-nots, the we believe this, the we don't. Western expansion has been largely driven by groups that split off by other groups, the Puritans, the Separatists, the Catholics, the Baptists. We, we didn't invent this. There have always been divisions within, within religious groups. And there were four major religious groups in the first century, Jerusalem. 
the zealots, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Let me go through these real quick. Other times you're going to be reading stories. It's going to talk about these. You'll have a grid for who these people were. The zealots were like a militia group. They were ready to kill all of the Romans who were oppressing them, and they were even willing to kill the Jews who weren't willing to help them kill the Romans. Now, they weren't quite this violent in Jesus' day, but within 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, they were a quite violent group. The word zealous actually meant little dagger. They would wear daggers around their neck. They would often use them to kill people who were, they felt were oppressing them. Now, the interesting part is one of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot. It's like there's one in every group. And there, there was someone from this faction that was a part of, of the disciples. So there were the zealots. There were the Essenes. Now, they were very different. They actually would withdraw from society. They left Jerusalem to go live in the desert. They were dedicated to prayer and study, and they were looking for the return of a Messiah, although they didn't recognize Jesus as being the Messiah. There are some who believe that John the Baptist might have been an Essene. He withdrew to the desert. He looked forward to the Messiah. Now, they would have been very reserved. He was more of a public character. So if he was in a scene, he wasn't a very good Essene, okay? But there are some that think he might have been then. So you've got the Zealots, the Essenes, you've got the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the wealthy upper class who were involved in the priesthood. They rejected all of the oral tradition. They went right back to the scripture. They lived their lives around that, but they were very Hellenistic. They had adapted the ways of the Greeks and of the Romans, and they were probably the most palatable to their Roman oppressors. When you become like those who oppress you, you just pass the oppression down to the next generation, and that's what they were doing. And then there was this fourth group called the Pharisees. They were a movement that, that really appealed more to the blue-collar uh, people of Israel. They were true believers whose goal was to keep the nation faithful to the Mosaic faith. And they loved rules. Now, if you're, you're a parent, you understand that rules beget rules. Don't think, you're, you're careful about the rules that you make, because every rule that you make can be divided into two other rules that you have to explain. But the Pharisees loved that. And they were constantly trying to trip you up on the new rule they had come up with. And they controlled people with their man-made traditions. Now, for Joe Average of Jerusalem, or I guess Jew Average... For Jew average, the zealots seemed a little crazy. They didn't want to be involved in them. The Essenes seemed a little spacey. They didn't want to be involved in them. The Sadducees were like old money. They didn't know how to relate to them. But the Pharisees, who appealed to the human sense of being better than somebody else by making up rules that they had to enforce on other people, they were gaining traction. And in this season of history, this, the, the Pharisees were growing quickly. To this day, the Pharisees exist and continue to make up rules. Now, this is Luke's first mention of the Pharisees, indicating that this organized religion was beginning to take note of Jesus. And these religious attendees had come to listen to him teach. Luke mentions it, we think, because Luke was highly educated, and these guys were considered, uh, the King James Version refers to them as doctors of the law. So he's educated, he recognizes these educated leaders, and he mentions the Pharisees are in the room. It is possible to be formally trained and functionally ignorant of the ways of the Lord. 
And Luke says that they weren't just the local hypocrites, that these were Pharisees from all across the land and all had come together to hear what Jesus had to say. Because critics are as attracted to miracles as true seekers, but for different reasons. Now remember, Jesus is straight out of his time of spending time with the Father, and he's gathered to teach and to do miracles. Luke 5, 17 says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, we don't understand this fully, how Jesus, who is fully God, is anointed by the Holy Spirit to do miracles. Like, that, that's hard for me to, to get my head around, but it's what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit was with him to do miracles and rested on him. So here we have the perfect storm. Jesus is prayed up, the religious leaders show up, and the Holy Spirit is there to move. Something's bound to happen. Verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. Now you've got to admire the relationship that these guys have with their friend, that they are so desperate for his healing that they'll tear the roof off of a house to get him near Jesus. What you saw in Sunday school about this story where they're removing the little palm branches is probably not accurate. Back then, their houses had legitimate roofs. This was not a little lean-to they built. This was a, a house probably with a tile roof, probably with a layer of dirt and another layer of tile. They generally had a deck on the top. We read in other places in the Bible where disciples slept on rooftops. This was a solid roof. This wasn't just, you know, let's move a few branches and lower the guy down. Imagine the complicated dynamics of the crowd sitting in a room, they're crowded, there's no room for anybody else, and suddenly dust begins to settle. And they hear noise of people moving around, and all of a sudden the pitch of a, of, a, of a shovel pokes through the roof, and dirt begins to fall. And somewhere, I mean the Bible doesn't talk about it, but there's a homeowner somewhere. He's thinking this is not covered by warranty. And they tear the roof off this house and lower the guy in. When Jesus is in the room, those who understand what he is about will stop at nothing to get to him. Something unique happens when Jesus is in the room that doesn't happen when you're on the roof away from him or you don't get to the place. Now let me set the text aside just for a second. I cast a little vision for something here. Why do we worship? When we gather here, why, you know, for a year, those of you who, who don't know, we gathered on Zoom, okay? On good Sundays, it was bad. On some Sundays, it was terrible. But we're, but we're thankful for it. But, it. but by the end of the day, the part that just drove us all completely bonkers, in addition to the lack of donuts, which turned out to be a bigger thing than I realized, the thing that we couldn't do on Zoom was worship corporately. It just didn't work. We tried a couple times, train wreck. It just, it, and it was the thing we ached for, okay? We, I can teach into a camera. It's about as bad as it is now. You know, I mean, it just is what it is. But we couldn't worship together. Because when you worship together, it attracts the presence of the Lord. We could never, we just couldn't get there on Zoom. It just didn't work. Worship produces an aroma and a presence, and God is drawn to that. That, honestly, friends, is why we need a prayer room. It's why we need a place 
where we can gather and those that have the time can spend an hour or two just in his presence, not the 20 or 30 minutes leading up to Randy teaching or whatever, but we can say, no, Lord, this is just for you. Because he comes in those rooms. We want to have a place where people can meet daily. Maybe the same people, maybe not always the same people, but where we are worshiping and praying regularly because God is drawn to that. Even our little broken songs that we don't do very well, he loves that because it's us doing them. We had our kids in preschool for what felt like 100 years. Because about the time one got out, another would enter. And so every year at preschool, they have this great thing called Donuts with Dads. And all the dads show up because donuts. And you would go, and they would show you the craft that your child had made, which was essentially some variation of glue, macaroni, and a paper cup. I mean, you know, whatever you can do with glue, macaroni, and a paper cup. Little, and, and as a dad, you would go, and you would see the glue on the macaroni, the paper cup, and there'd be like 30 of them, but you wanted to see your kid's glue, macaroni, paper cup contraption. You weren't satisfied with seeing it. You wanted to see this one, and it meant something to you because it was your child's. Friends, we, even though maybe our songs aren't perfect, he goes, they're yours. I want to see what you have. I want to draw near to what you're offering. Jesus' heart is drawn to worship, and when Jesus is in the room, there's nothing like it. That's where I want to live. But that takes intention. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Ultimately, the bridge is going to need a context where regularly we can gather and we can draw near to him in a, in a rhythmic way, a, a rhythm of our day, and so that he can invade our lives and we can have him near us. And these guys were saying, let's draw near to Jesus with our friend who can't even walk. Let's just see what happens when we get in the same room with him. What would you do to get your lame friend in the room with Jesus? What happened was explosive and strangely controversial. Luke 5, 20. And when he saw their faith, when the dust settled and the pitchforks came down through the roof, and the guy starts getting lowered down, Jesus looks up. When he saw their faith, he's not even referring to the faith of the guy on the gurney. He's talking to the faith of his friends. He said, man, your sins are forgiven. Now, this bewilders everybody. Because that's not, what they brought, not why they brought the guy. They didn't bring him to have his sins forgiven. It's like, Jesus, he's on a gurney. Can you not see what this guy needs? He can't walk, and you're forgiving sins. They didn't say we've lowered a sinner through the, through the roof. I mean, plenty of those walked in through the front door. In our way of thinking, this is like taking your car to get a taillight replaced and going to pick it up and say, we changed the engine. Well, that's fine, but that's not what I thought I needed. Man's obvious problem is not always his biggest problem. And Jesus knew that the guy being lowered through the roof had needs that extended far beyond why they were lowering him through the roof. And Jesus looks up, sees dirt falling, sees the gurney coming down, does a 30-second triage and addresses his need rather than his obvious affliction. Now, this is probably more strange to you and I than it would have been to them in this day. Although 
it doesn't mean they had a right understanding about it. Let me explain. Just as we see the guy and we only see a lame man, it would not have been unusual for his friends to somehow associate his physical problem with sin. Many in that day tried to draw correlations between physical problems and sin. Remember in John 9, they took the guy who had been born blind, they brought him to Jesus, and they said, who sinned, him or his parents? And the guy's like, what do you mean, who sinned? I was born this way. You can't blame this on me. I was like this when I got here, and don't blame it on my parents. Somehow they connected our physical being with our spirituality to that. So right or wrong, them tearing the roof off of this thing, they were probably concerned about a spiritual walk as well, even though now we have a clearer understanding of the separation of that, and being sick does not necessarily mean you are in need of forgiveness. Jesus saw this guy and said, no, he needs both. What we are building here in the way of what we hope is a vibrant community or a church family, think about what that, what does that look like for a minute? Is it it coming to church and having people know who you are? That's part of it. Is it kind of growing old together and look back to, oh, we've been together for 10 years? Yeah, that's part of it. But the deepest and most vibrant part of the community we're trying to build is to build a people that say, so help me, I would tear a roof off a house to make sure that you got everything that Jesus says he has for you. Charles Spurgeon said, there are cases which will need the aid of a little band of workers before they will be fully saved. Your friends need a little band of workers before they might be fully saved. May we be that little band of workers. In our time of need, may we have disruptive friends who aren't afraid to take the roof off something. And in our friends' time of need, may we be that disruptive. In scripture, these four guys were fighting for their friend. And we see things transpire really quickly here. And when they do, there are some almost universal occurrences that happen when people take up the cause of another. First thing that happens is hearts are revealed. Have you ever been frustrated, angry, hurt, or whatever, and tried to hide it from somebody? We call that being a grown-up at times, okay? There are a reason kids are more entertaining than grown-ups. They just say what's ever on their mind. But we don't do that all the time. And that's not always a bad thing. We have thoughts we call our inside thoughts. A healthy adult learns to govern what comes out of their mouth. Kids don't understand that. But let me clue you in here to a slightly maybe disconcerting reality. If you haven't thought about this before, for those of you that are masters of holding your thoughts in and playing your cards close to your vest, Jesus can read your mind. Jesus knows what you're thinking. There's not a thing going on between your ears that Jesus is not aware of. The things you think, the secrets of your heart, he's already aware of it. It's true today, it was true then. If you read on in Luke 5, 21 to 23, and the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this is not an out loud statement. We learn in a minute here that they're just thinking these things internally. Verse 22 says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts and answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? He says, why are you, why are you thinking these things? Why, why are you? And, and it, it confronts them with their own thoughts. 
Jesus was known to say things that would rattle cages, even if they were about things that nobody else knew. And to offer forgiveness of sin and to address their thoughts about it was controversial, but it was necessary. Theologian F.F. Bruce says, a prophet is always a scandalous, irreverent blasphemer from the conventional point of view. And these Pharisees were hearing him, they're thinking, who is he to forgive sins? And his comment about forgiving sins revealed the hearts of those who claimed to be religious. There are two kinds of hearts here on the scene. There were those who were willing to tear the roof off the place to get somebody into the presence of God. And then there were the judgmental Pharisees, polished on the outside, that Jesus would later call whitewashed graveyards, that even on the brink of a miracle are questioning Jesus' authority. The first group are true friends. The second group has the audacity to think, who does Jesus think he is? When you need a miracle, you want to be surrounded about people, by people who will tear the roof off for you, not those that are going to try and ask, who does Jesus think he is? My point here is not even so much about the actual healing or forgiveness. It's about who you are walking in agreement with in your time of need. You need to tear the roof off people, not people that are going to lean back and say, well, who does Jesus think he is? When you are at your weakest, you need to be really careful about which voices you listen to because both kinds will come out of the woodwork. Hearts are revealed when we are on the edge of a miracle. And you want to be sure you are in tune with the voices that are believing for the best for you, not questioning Jesus' authority in your life. Some of you have friends that are so rational in their minds that when you go to them with your struggles, they actually talk you out of believing for more. They'll actually like, try and lower your expectations who, who does Jesus think he is to heal? Second thing that happens in these seasons is the full authority of Jesus is displayed. Now, largely, we don't like authority. I mean, we think it's important. We'd like to be in it, but we're not crazy about it. So we tend to tune it out. We're never really clever about responding to authority in a selective or a convincing way if we're not the one in charge. We've talked before about the dangers of dividing our life up and having some secret areas that, that God has no authority over, thinking there are places that he can't impact. I have lost count of the people who've come to me about a problem or a difficulty that they feel is not addressed in the Bible or that the Lord has been silent on. As the, yeah, I've prayed about it, the Lord really isn't talking about it. How many issues have you watched people get into trouble with? And part of their defense is, well, the Bible's not clear about that. As if there are these areas of life that are like demilitarized zones where even God himself doesn't go. So much so that the battle our children will fight is not necessarily against immorality like many of us have fought. It's against amorality or the idea that there just is no right and wrong. So for the sake of clarity, let me just tell you, Jesus has authority over all of your life, over your spirit, over your body, over your will, over your plans, over your family. He's got authority over the entire thing. And to question that authority or to avoid that authority in one area or the other puts you at odds with God. 
Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in a culture that increasingly says there are parts of life that the Bible or God has no authority over. The church has fallen for this baloney. I was talking with, with Lyle, our sound guy this morning, about how many things in society that we have seen that are acceptable now and celebrated now that 20 years ago, if done, were done in secret, at least with some sense of understanding that this does not line up with Scripture. And if you're, if you're maybe 35 or under, it's hard for you to understand how much change has happened in the last 20 years. Like, just because you don't have the, the perspective of a little bit of time. Society has changed so much in saying that, yeah, the Bible is just not clear about that. The Bible was clear about that for thousands of years. And now it's suddenly not clear. What we're really saying is there are parts of our life that we think the Bible has no authority over or that Jesus has no authority over. And we can carve that off. There is no part of your life he has no authority over. Jesus cuts through all the negative thoughts and the voices and all the doubt and the tension. And he says in this place, let me just extend my authority over both realms, the physical and the spiritual here. I'm going to address your need, which is your spiritual walk, and I'm going to address your desire, which is your physical being. And in one fell swoop, the guy gets forgiveness and healing. Probably nobody in scripture had a more life-changing day except Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. When Jesus applied his full authority to this man. So the guy gets up out of a bed that he thought he was not going to leave. Because when miracles take place, realities are changed. Luke 5.25 says, Immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. You wonder, what's the first thing that goes through this guy's mind when he gets healed? I wish I'd have brought some shoes. You know, I haven't needed shoes. I gotta go home barefoot now because I didn't know really what was gonna happen. So much changed for him. Even when we're going to God for miracles, we're rarely prepared for how much our life changes. They're not just shifts in nuance, they're shifts in everything. And for the rest of his days, this guy probably divided his life up to BDR and ADR. Before demolition of the roof, and after demolition of the roof. And after demolition of the roof was completely different for him because when Jesus touches somebody, it changes their life. And his life became changed in a moment. I am asking for Jesus to reveal himself to us in ways that would divide our lives into before and after. Even if you've been serving the Lord for years, I'm asking him to visit you in a way you go, oh, I didn't know him that way and now everything is different. And we can point to a moment and we say, look what Jesus did there when we gave him full authority in our lives. Last thing that happens is that when miracles take place, worship radiates in all directions. I want to ask if Zion would come back up. We're just going to sing one more song. But here's one of these situations where the me my friend Rusty used to tell me when we go to tense meetings, He'd say, the meeting is never about what the meeting is about. You ever been to a meeting that was not about what the meeting was about? 
The need is never just what the need looks like. And the healing is never just what the healing is about. The results always have way far more ranging impact. And Luke 5.26 says, Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. When Jesus moves in miracles, it's never in a vacuum. And the result is that he gets glorified and it radiates out from that place far beyond the... I promise you, it wasn't just the lame man walking home talking about it. It wasn't just the guys who dug the hole through the roof. Even the Pharisees walked away as witness to his power. When Jesus does a miracle, it's like throwing a rock in a pond and the ripples just go out. I am asking for miracles, not just so that the lives of those here in the bridge get a little easier and that what we think our need is gets met, but so so that worship radiates out through the city of Kansas City. I'm believing for praise to radiate out through the churches of Kansas City so that Monday morning coffee discussions are about what Jesus did in our city the day before. One of the marks of the Jesus movement, I've been talking to people over the last couple of years who are part of it. They said there was a season when the water level of the activity of the Lord was so high in Southern California. They said if you walked into a coffee shop in Southern California with a Bible, you'd end up having a Bible study with six or eight people just instantly. Because the power of the Lord had been radiating out. People were being healed and they were talking about it and it was on everybody's tongue. What's God doing? The raised water level of awareness when our praise attracts his attention and we find ourselves in the room with Jesus and he exerts his authority over our lives. What radiates out from that can change a city. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Nothing only happens in a little dance studio with a handful of people. If God touches somebody, that radiates out and that changes our city. Stand with me for a moment. Let's just take a few minutes here and begin to worship and attract his presence. Do the one thing we couldn't do before. Draw near to him. Just enter into worship for a few minutes. We love you, Jesus. We love love you, Jesus. There is not a moment not a moment spent with you that we regret, Lord. Every time you meet me here, I'm filled with life again. Sing it again. There's not a moment in your presence that we regret. There is not a Come, Holy Spirit. Just begin to draw near to Him right now. There is not a moment we regret about this. time. 
want your nearness, Lord. We want to be in the room with yeah, you, just keep Jesus. Singing that. There is not a more. Come, Lord Jesus. In your presence, I regret Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. Every time you Father, we come to you right now. We ask that you would have your way, that you would extend authority into every realm of our lives, God. We would recognize you as the sovereign one, as the king of kings. There is none like you. Father, we confess we're distracted to the right and the left by things that are less than. But all we really need and all we really want is to be in the room with you. There is none like you, Jesus. We've got just a moment here. I just want to linger here for a second. We love you, Jesus. Another five or ten minutes isn't going to cost us anything. Just... If you feel comfortable, just lift your hands to him. Lift your voice to him. Father, would you come? Lord, if we set our hearts on you, would you meet us, Jesus? Father, we are hungrier for you and your authority over our lives than anything imaginable. Lord, every time we have reached out to take a hold and take authority in our lives, we have messed it up. So extend your authority over the life of the bridge, we ask. It is for our good. There is none like you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. We are hungry for you, God. Messiah, come.
that the Holy Spirit is, wants to visit us this morning. He wants to touch us. Just let him. Just open your heart to him right now. Drop any vestige of resistance that you're holding. Just give him space to move. It's all he needs. Give him space. Give him space. Just like the Pharisees, that reasoning, that wrestling, that says, is this real? Does he really have the power and the authority to change things in my life? Does he really have the, the depth of love and compassion, the insight and the nearness to touch me? I just want to invite us, if, if you're feeling that wrestle, if you've felt in this place of doubt where you, you, can, you can believe it for somebody else, I feel this personally often. I can believe for somebody else's healing, whether it's emotional, mental, physical. But when it comes to myself, there's just this block in the way where yes, I can't Jesus. get through. I'm, I'm reasoning myself out of faith. And I want to take a minute, if you're feeling that, I just want you to lift your hands up before the Lord. Jesus, I believe He wants to come and break through that wall. Yes, God. I, I, I'm convinced that this is not something we have to work ourselves out of. Yes. Even this morning, I just see there's this glass wall between some of us and that place of faith believing. And it's not up to us to try and get through the wall. Yes. It's up to us to say, here we are. Here we are. And when we take that posture before him, he is a father that rises up from where he is seated to rush through and shatter that yes. wall that's between us and him. Yes. So, Father, I pray for those in this room this morning, yes. God, that feel stuck in this place of, of hearing these stories, of hearing these miracles, and saying, I believe it happened, and I believe it's happening today yet for other people, but it's so hard for me to believe that this is for me, that you would do this for me. Father, I ask you to draw near this morning as the one that breaks through every wall, the one that draws near when we say here we are the one who knocks at the door and when we open you come in father we open that door we give you permission to break down the walls this morning father i ask that you would release a tangible measure of faith in this room faith that you are for us faith that you see the details that nobody else sees you see the places of pain and brokenness and you have the love and the power to break in so we say break into this place this morning. Break in with the fullness of your strength, of your love, of your nearness. Touch us, oh God. Yes. And, and if he's ministering to you in that, stay in that place. But I also feel led just to take a moment this morning as we're talking about this. 
people whose physical bodies were touched with power from God unto change and transformation in their lives. If you have a need in your body, a need for healing, whether it's been a week long or 10, 10 years, 20 years long, we want to invite the Holy Spirit to move this morning. Yes. We don't want to be a, a people that just talks about the stories. We want to live them. We want to take what's in the Word and say, now we're going to enter into that and make it living in our midst. So if you have a need, a physical need, that you want Jesus to come and touch you and heal you with, I want you to raise a hand, and, and we're just going to come around those who have a need this morning as the body. We're going to pray for them. We're going to invite the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, if you have a need, there's several people in the room. Just go. If you're near them, ask them what it is they need prayer for. And begin to ask Jesus to come. Begin to ask him to move with physical healing power in this place. There's a verse in Matthew 18. He says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. And he's speaking in the, in the context of prayer and receiving so we're going to put that into practice. We're gathered in his name as his people to see him move in our midst. We say, come, Lord. We don't want to leave the way we came in, in our hearts, in our minds, our emotions, and in our bodies. We believe that you are Jehovah Rapha, that you are the Father who yes. heals. Healing. You're the Father who restores. So we ask for power right now to break out in this room. Yes. God, release power in this room. Release your spirit. We come in faith. As weak as it might feel, we come in faith that you are the Father who heals. You are the Father that touches his sons and daughters. That healing is our inheritance under the sun, under the blood, and through the cross. Just continue praying for those that need healing. Those of you that aren't praying, continue receiving from Him this morning. Jesus 
because there is a relationship that is fractured and you trust the Lord to move in your life but there are other people involved one of the most complicated things the Lord can mend is a relationship because there's so many dynamics and it has even gotten to the point in the last days or weeks where that other person has cut you off completely it isn't the communication is bad it's, it's gone In that situation, the Lord is saying to you, though, that he still has authority over that. If your situation doesn't fit that exactly, don't, don't make it fit. But there's someone, I believe, whose relationship has been cut completely off. We want to pray for you this morning. Father, we ask that the healing power of Jesus would invade broken relationships. Father, where that person has cut the other off and said, I'm done, I can't even have dialogue with them anymore, that you would break down that wall and you would be the center around what that relationship centers around. Father, we ask that you would do an incredible work. precious time before the Lord. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. So Lord Jesus, we look to your miracles. We look to your promises. We ask that you would do them in our day and in our time. We would know the fullness of your power. We would know your authority in every area of our life. We would take a cue from your son. We would disengage from the busyness to go spend time with you. You would teach us the ebb and flow of a life before God. In Jesus' name. still praying, please feel free to stay where you're at. God bless you.